Transitioning to, uh, to our sermon, let me pray first uh, for the reality of our church for this season, even as we're leading up to Easter. There is something uh, special that people respond to in our community in a different way than Easter, even though every Sunday, as I said, is Easter Sunday. But there seems to be unique opportunities that come along with Easter. So let me pray that God would use that for our church and for his glory. Father, I pray that in this season, as we lead up to Easter, that you would give us the same excitement, the same hope that comes on Easter Sunday. Because that is the truth of what we live in now. That is what Jesus has secured for us. But I also pray that we would have unique opportunities to spread the gospel. We are about gospel growth in people's lives, and we long to see that happen here in the people here and outside of these walls. And so we ask that you would bring more people for your glory, that the other churches would reach more people for your glory, that the gospel would take root and start to transform and change lives the way, only way that the gospel can. And so we ask for your blessing uh, in this specific season leading up to uh, the focus in on Easter, that people in our community who don't normally go to church will go that Sunday. And so we ask that your spirit would move and work to open up ears, to open up eyes, to make hearts receptive to the good news of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. There was an old uh, Presbyterian minister named Donald Barnhouse. And he was being interviewed by someone. And the interviewer asked him this question. said, what would a city look like if Satan really got a hold of it? What would a city look like if Satan really got a hold of that city? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, how would you answer that question if you were asked it? Maybe when I said that, a few cities popped up in your head currently that you know of that you think Satan's already kind of gotten a hold of. But what is it about those places that would make those cities pop up in your head uh, that you would think Satan has a particular hold on them? I mean, what do you really think it would be like if Satan had full control of the city? What do you think his strategy or his goal would be in that city? Do you think, uh, does your mind run to things like undoing the norm of the family structure in society, undoing that traditional family structure, or uh, he would promote progressive sexual ethics? Uh, do you think about politics and policies that he would try to implement? Or maybe TV shows and movies that would become popular that would be uh, kind of, we'd be in a trance to get informed or indoctrinated by. Maybe music and the message that it would promote, that people would just be mindless about taking in that information. Is that where your mind goes? How would you answer that question? What a city would look like if Satan really got a hold. Do you know what Reverend Barnhouse's answer was? He said, all the bars would be closed. Pornography banished and pristine streets would be filled with tidy uh, pedestrians who smiled at each other. He goes on, there would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday. And he ends by saying, where Christ was not preached. Isn't that interesting? What an insightful, good answer that is. Uh, 
so many of us immediately think in terms of behavior, actions, and sins that would take place if Satan got a hold of it. But the main goal of the enemy is not to make you misbehave or even break God's commandment. The enemy's main objective is to deceive, fool, and veil people from the reality of who Jesus is. The main goal of the enemy is to deceive and veil the reality of who Jesus is. There are so many ways and strategies that the enemy is seeking to do that. But there's one particular way that comes up in the text that we're going to look at this morning. The text we're going to be in is in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. See, up to this point, we're coming off a few tests. John has encouraged God's children to obey his commandments. He's encouraged them to love one another. And he has exhorted us and them to not love the world. But now in our section that we're going to look at this morning, John is warning us. He's warning us about the main danger that the church faces. Specifically in his context that he's writing, the warning is about the people or the false teachers who have just left the church. They've left the church, but they're seeking to seduce and convert people to their understanding of God. And John does not mince his words when describing these people in our section. He calls them deceivers, liars, and antichrists. The warning that John is giving us in our text is of the utmost importance for us. And is for the utmost importance of them. So that's what we're going to be in this morning. If you can or are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you heard from the beginning, (coughs) sorry, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can be seated. Father, I pray that you would move and work in our hearts through your word this morning. That your spirit would transform us on the spot, that the words would jump off the page. That we would get caught up in the reality of who you are, and you would make this message ultimately clear to us. But this would not be an exercise where we just gain head knowledge. 
but the reality of what we know would actually transform, change, and affect our hearts. Only you can do that, and so we ask that you would. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right off the bat, there's a word that has to be addressed. You guess what it is? Antichrist, right? There's so much baggage and misunderstanding around this word. But this section helps dispel some of that. First John says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. And then he goes on, but I am here to tell you that many Antichrists are already here. John says that is how we know it's the last hour. The last hour. Now, John wrote that about 2,000 years ago. So was he wrong calling this the last hour, the last days? Did he think that Jesus was about to come back anytime? Maybe he thought that. But according to the Bible, according to Jesus, the last hour, the last days began after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and then sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in believers. So it is the last hour because Jesus' work is done. Jesus' finished work is done, and that's signified by him ascending, sitting on his throne at the right hand of the Father, and now we have the Spirit. Now we are waiting for him to return and experience the full effects of his victorious worth and work on our behalf. But until he returns, Antichrist are here. And we should not be surprised. Because this is the last hour for the enemy to attack as well. And that is what he is doing. So who are the Antichrist that he's referencing? Well, according to our passage, they are simply people who deny that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is. That's it. There's no kind of weirdness around it. Antichrist, <clears throat> don't believe that he is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Savior, that he's the Son of God. That's it. It's that simple. But the danger and warning are real because they're not that easy to identify as we would think. The term Antichrist literally means against Christ, obviously, but it can also mean in the place of Christ. See, these Antichrists don't have horns. They don't have numbers on their foreheads that identify them, right? They are not Satanists. They are not promoting a religion that is explicitly anti-Jesus, even. In fact, they would say they like Jesus, they think he was good, even a great teacher, and that he lived a radically good life. But they would not say he's the Savior. They would not say he's equal with the Father. These Antichrists are not necessarily directly opposed to Jesus, but they seek to redefine him, or they seek to change the level of importance he has for Christians and what we believe. See, Antichrist will settle for you taking your focus, trust, and attention off of him and shifting your focus, trust, and attention onto yourself. We are surrounded by an Antichrist uh, message in our society, are we not? We're surrounded by it. I mean, we have common phrases that I know I use, that you probably use, like you do you. Whatever makes you happy you must take care of yourself first before you can take care of anyone else. Embrace the real you, however the culture defines that real you. 
right? We also have promises from leaders, from politicians, leaders that they're going to be the ones who will make things right. They're going to be the ones who will deliver us out of whatever current state our country is in when they come to try to come into power. See, the people delivering these messages might not have anything against Jesus, but they are, whether they know it or not, promoting the Antichrist message. But the danger and the warning in our text is actually not about politicians or leaders. It's not about the culture and society that these believers at the time lived in. It's not about any of that kind of stuff, actually. The danger and warning from John and our text about the Antichrist and their message, it's coming from within the church. The warning is not about out there. The warning is actually coming from within the church. One commentator said the greatest dangers to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are always from within, not from without. The danger and warning that John is giving us is about messages within the church that produce the Antichrist agenda. To say it another way, to say that any message given that does not lead us to trusting in Jesus more, but leads us to trust and, and, and does not lead us to trusting in him more and leads us to trusting in ourselves less is a promotion of the Antichrist message, whether they know it or not, whether that's their intention or not. And that is why we so often, as we said today, Redeemer, we believe has to be about good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not about good advice about what you must do for the week. Because even good advice that comes from the Bible that does not lead you to the person and the work of Jesus can be a message that promotes the Antichrist agenda. And if you don't agree with me, let's talk afterwards. That's a bold statement, right? Jesus actually addresses this and these people in John chapter 5, at the end of John chapter 5. See, he's speaking to people who know and love the Bible. The Bible they have, which is the Old Testament, probably the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The one that Moses wrote. See, these people have dedicated their lives to the teachings of the Bible In John 5. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. But yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, they love the scriptures. They study, they search, they even teach it. They know it better than you and I do. Jesus is saying they do that because they think that's where life is found, but they completely miss it. They completely miss out because they fail to come to the giver of life, the one whom all the scriptures point to. They fail to come to Jesus. And Jesus then ends this section to these uh, people who love the Bible in John 5 in this brilliant way. He says, I will not accuse you to the Father. But there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Isn't that awesome? I will not accuse you to the Father. I'm not even going to accuse you. But there's one who will. 
the one who you've put your hope in, the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses is the one who accuses you. Moses is the one who wrote the scriptures that you love and search, and he is the one that accuses you. And then Jesus concludes by telling them why. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. And then he ends with this. For he wrote of me. Moses, Jesus is saying, wrote of him. Now what, I don't remember seeing the name Jesus anywhere in the first five books of the Bible. Did you? Moses never wrote his name. So what is he saying? What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying it's all about him. From beginning to the end, it is all about Jesus. And if we don't get there, we miss it. If we don't understand that that's what everything's about, we miss it. No matter how much we love it, how much we know of it, how much we study it or dedicate our lives around it. If we don't get to him, we miss it. Jesus' worth and work as proclaimed in the good news of the gospel is what the Christian life is all about. It's what the entire Bible is about. It's about Jesus. See, the gospel, as we've said before, is not the ABCs of the Christian life and how you get in and then you move on from it. It's the A through Z of the Christian life. Listen, you can believe and be impacted and even dedicate your life to some truths found in the Bible, like its views on abortion or marriage or sexuality or immigration or generosity or giving or loving others or the golden rule or not judging, so on and so forth. You can dedicate your life to those things, but if the gospel is left out, not only is it worth nothing, you're actually serving the message and the agenda of the Antichrist. That is what Barnhouse's answer to that question about if Satan got a hold of a city makes so crystal clear to us. If Satan got a hold of a city, people would be so nice to each other and the churches would be at full capacity, but one thing would be missing. One thing would be different. Jesus would not be preached. And that's the only thing that's different, but that's everything. That is everything. Notice that the small churches that John's writing to here in Ephesus uh, in our text are actually getting smaller because the Antichrists are leaving the church. But John has little to no concern of their size, right? John's not concerned about them winning over the leaders of the city or changing the culture of that society to have more Christian values in this context. John is not caught up even in their ability to win a debate against these antichrists. John is not calling them to grow or advance in in the truth of God's word. John's concern, John's call to these believers and to us is very simple. One word, abide. And that's it. John's concern, John's call to you and to these Christians is to abide. Not advance, not win, not sniff out other antichrists in your, in your midst. The call is simply to abide. Paul, towards the end of his letter to the Galatians in chapter 5, gives a similar call. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. 
Now, here's the similar. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Not advance in your freedom, not run, not walk, not even crawl in your freedom, but stand. Stand in the freedom that is yours in Christ. That is the same call that we have here. Not advance, not move on, abide. But abide in what? Verse 24 tells us, abide in what you have heard from, be- from the beginning. What did you hear from the beginning? Abide in the gospel. Abide in the gospel that proclaims the worth and work of Jesus for you. In the midst of these antichrists promoting their message, how is it that John is only calling them to abide? Why is that the only thing he's calling them to do? Why is he not calling them to advance? Why is he not calling them to win the argument, to snuff out, sniff out these other antichrists in, the, in their midst? Why is he <clears throat> not calling them to sniff that out so they can't promote their message? How is it that John is only calling them to abide and calling us to abide? Because the victory has already been won. You don't need to win because the victory has already been won. That's why he can tell us to abide. The war is over. Jesus is seated on his throne because the work is done. And that is the good news of the gospel. That it is finished. So you don't have to advance. Just abide. Just stand firm on the victory that's already been won for you. That's it. We are simply to abide in him. There's nothing more for us, but there's nothing less, right? We are called to abide in him. So when you lose a loved one, what's the call on your life? Abide. When life doesn't pan out the way that you'd plan, what's the call on your life? Abide. When you finally get that promotion at work that you've worked so hard for, and it's finally given to you, you don't get overlooked, what's the call on your life? Abide. When you face challenges in your marriage, what's the call? Abide. When everything you touch actually seems to work out and life is going really well for you, you're like, who's going through that? What's the call of that? (laughs) Abide. As we sing earlier, Whatever my lot, Jesus has taught me to say, it is well with my soul. That is abiding. Whatever's going on in my life, good, bad, or otherwise, Jesus has taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Abide in the message of the gospel that proclaims love, forgiveness, victory, and eternal life are securely yours right now in Christ. That's what we are to abide in. That's the call of our passage. It's that simple. Not advance, not move on, not win debates, not make sure you're right, not make sure your political agenda goes forward. Abide. Abide in what you heard from the beginning. Now listen to me. As simple and as clear as that call is, You can't do it. You can't do it. 
And you know that. You know you don't do it, right? If you're honest with yourself, you know that reality of your heart. You know how little it takes for you to stray and to live life more in line with the message of the Antichrist than the line of the message of the gospel, right? If you know your heart, you know the reality of how little it takes for you to turn away from Jesus and to not abide. But you knowing that about your heart is actually the key. (laughs) It's actually key that you know that about your heart. Because if I leave you with the call of this passage as if it's something you can do, even with the call being to abide in the message of the gospel, something as simple, as clear as that, if I leave that with you, this morning, then I am redirecting your focus, trust, and attention onto you and your ability to abide in him, which sounds more like the Antichrist message than the gospel. See, the first step to abiding in the gospel is the profession of a belief that you can't and that you don't do it. That's why Jesus had to come as the Son of God. That's why he had to live perfectly, abide perfectly for you. That's why he had to die on the cross in your place. That's why he had to defeat death and gain victory that he gives to you. That's why he is reigning on his throne right now, interceding for you. And that is why, as our text tells us, that our hope in abiding actually rests in him as well. That's good news. That's good news for people who struggle to abide. Before John ever tells us to abide, he gives us the hope and the reason of why we will. In verse 20, he says, because we have been anointed by the Holy One. Meaning, we have been given the Holy Spirit. We don't have confidence that we will abide because of our hold on God and the gospel. We have hope and confidence that we will abide because of his hold on us. And that we know that to be true because the Spirit has revealed that truth to us through the gospel. Don't you see that's why the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life? If it was, then you theoretically would be able to abide. The gospel is the A through Z of the Christian life life we need to preach it to ourselves and have it proclaimed to us by others constantly because the danger of us abiding is not due to the messages out there that's not where the danger comes from the danger is actually due to what's within our own hearts our own hearts and our quickness to leave the god we love We are so quick to leave the gospel and think that in some way, now it's up to us. In some way, when I blow it, when I mess up, when I haven't been to church in a while, God's going to treat me differently because of my behavior. But when I'm killing it, when I'm doing well, there better not be any hardship or suffering because I'm keeping my end of the bargain, right? But it's all grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. It's not a wage we earn. It's grace. It's a gift. 
We are so quick to leave and completely uh, leave completely depending on and trusting in the finished work of Jesus that we think that we can do it with just a little of his help. God, just help me a little bit in this area and I'll take care of the rest. I used to have this poster when I was a kid. Uh, it says, do your best, God will do the rest. It's a good saying, but it's heresy. <laughs> it's not right. <laughs> it's not do your best and God will do the rest. That's not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of the gospel. There's a story about Martin Luther, the reformer, where some people in his congregation come up to him. And they say, Pastor, why is it that week after week after week, all you ever preach to us is the gospel? Implying that we get the gospel and are ready to move on to something else, something deeper. We understand it by now. So why do you keep preaching it to us week after week? And then Luther responds in a very Luther way and says, well, because week after week you forget it. Week after week, you walk in here looking like a people who don't believe the gospel. And until you walk in here looking like people who are truly liberated by the truth of the gospel, he says, I'm going to continue to preach it to you. That's our stance here at Redeemer. That week after week, what we need to hear is what John says we already know. He says, I'm writing to you something not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. I'm writing to you what you know, so you need to hear the gospel week after week because the danger is within our own hearts and our hope is outside of our own hearts. See, we need the good news of the gospel preached to us every week because the danger is not out there, it's in here. And our hope is not in here, it's out there, it's him. The work of another. Week after week, we need to be reminded that our hope is not in our strength and our ability, but in the strength and ability of another. Here's the irony of all of this. The more we are convinced of our weakness to abide and our ability to abide on our own strength, the more we're convinced of our inability to do that, the more we realize he's holding on to us and we're not holding on to him, only then we actually start to grow in our ability to abide. Only when we realize and are convinced of the reality of our weakness to hold on to him, but at the same time we are convinced and realize his strength of his hold on us, then we start to abide in him. The promise and proof of the gospel is this, that because the Father let go of Jesus on the cross, he will never let go of you. That's why you can be sure you'll abide. Because he let go of his son on the cross. That when you deserve to be let go of, he never will. We know this because the spirit has shown it to be true to our hearts. Not in some theological realm that we understand, but to the reality of how we live. That we're convinced that abiding sounds so simple, but we know the proneness of our hearts. And as verse 25 says, and this promise he made to us, eternal life. So how long is he going to hold on to you? Even though you've messed up, even though you sin, even though you keep going away from him, even though you keep letting go of him, 
How long will he hold on to you? How long will you abide because of his grip on you? Eternity. Forever. That's what causes us to abide. When we focus on his hold on us through Jesus, not our hold on him. Amen.